We love feedback from listeners. We love hearing when things really resonate with you. And we also kind of love hearing where we went wrong. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, I know, but how else can we grow? So one listener wrote to us regarding two terms, and these terms are special needs and differently abled, that we used in the episode you're about to hear that referred to disabled individuals. And we are the first to admit that we are always still learning. It was a great reminder to us to center the voices of disabled individuals and to continue to listen to those voices about how to refer to them. If you want to learn more, there are a whole host of resources out there, including movies and books and disability rights activists that you can follow. For us, one that we found helpful was we suggest taking a look at the Disability Language Style Guide online, which is available at ncdj.org slash style guide. We're definitely exploring this more and will continue to center the voices of those whose narratives we are trying to shine light on as we grow and learn from each other and from you. So keep those emails coming. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we begin a two-part series on ableism. And if you know us, you know we have working titles. This one's really long because I started it and then I added stuff. And so it's called ableism or if you're not a white dude and or you're a kid with special needs this is tougher for you too and by this we mean the fact that it's like still 2020 but it feels like it's been a year this last month uh something like that by this yeah yeah we're on the first day of april but i mean who knows like every meme that's been out there that says this is march 55th has really resonated with me Right. Yeah. And we have it good right now. Like if we're really honest, I have it good. Well, I'm totally going to issue a disclaimer that if through the course of this episode, you hear the theme song from the Hunger Games playing, you know, I'm super mom right now letting my elementary school children watch that so that they stay away and relatively quiet while we record this episode. Well, you know, you could chalk that up to life skills, maybe. (laughs) They are shooting arrows in our backyard. (laughs) I cannot believe that they dug out an old Halloween costume and are literally shooting arrows at an old, like, poster of two adult people that we have that my husband hung outside in our backyard. (laughs) I'm like, maybe these skills will come in handy if this all falls apart in this country. Well, your kids are going to survive. My kids are throwing a weighted moon ball into a trash can. Okay, so my kids probably not high on that survival list, but that's okay because they'll have really good aim as they're running. So, yeah. (laughs) They can just chuck whatever they can at the people who are coming to attack them. I don't know. So, yeah, if you're listening real time to us, we're still in shelter in place. And basically, like you said, Misasha, the memes and everything else, I'm really over it. Like, I've had definite crap sleep for a few nights. I've had worries. I've, you know, I was like, okay, enough. I need to talk about something else. So, oh, good. Now, apparently in the background, you can hear all sorts of other trucks roaring by. I don't even know what's happening. (laughs) So I'd like to talk about something other than what's happening, because to be honest, we're about to start school, distance learning next week. Like, it's everything is about this stuff. And I think I need to get my brain out of my day to day. Because I think I kind of go, oh, and I have a little bit more appreciation for where I am in life with a roof over my head and food. You know, my family just made a Costco run today. My husband went all caveman and like wanted to provide for family. Amazingly, we found paper towels, which is good because we were down to the last roll. We're good. 
Anyway, sorry. Anything else you want to vent before we get kicking off? No. Well, you would be very proud of me. I don't think I've even told you this yet. I don't know if I told you back in the bar three days, I was listening to Ziva Meditation, but they released this whole self-care center, or she did. And so I listened to this whole talk that she had with her therapist about dealing with the anxious feelings that come up when you're, you know, we're in this age of uncertainty. And it was amazing. I think you would really like it. I'm so proud of you. Okay, what are you supposed to do when you get the anxious feeling coming up? Well, it basically, the therapist works through these whole series of questions, and they're rapid fire. So the whole theory behind it is you sort of say in your head what your anxiety level is, right, between one and 10. And when I started, mine was like a seven or whatever. And then he starts asking all these questions. And when you hear the question, what you're supposed to say either out loud or, you know, if you're in small quarters with people who might be like, what is happening? You say in your head, feeling clear. And as you go through these rapid fire questions, and it's sort of like five minute blocks of those, and they're about, you know, what you can control, what you can't control, and what are your intentions then? And how do you find positivity? And where do you find positivity? And it's as you as he asks each question, and you say feeling clear, you can feel the change in your body. It's really interesting. And then you stop after part one. And then he says, where are you now numerically? And I was like down to a three. And then he did a second series. And so it was fascinating. You would love this. Oh, that sounds amazing. I just read an article that was making its rounds about how it's not COVID-19 we should be afraid of. It's, well, I mean, yes, we should be wary of it, but also even more so this idea of fear wrapped up in anxiety and everything else. Because I think it's that fear that's causing us to do things that are not going to help us survive. They're going to like limit our sleep, which will ruin our immune system and all the knock-on effects. It'll cause people to attack Asian people at Sam's Clubs in Texas's, like Texas's, as if we need multiple. <laughs> More than one, yes. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. That's really cool. You have to send me that link. I will. It was helping because, you know, in the Bay Area, we just got our shelter in place extended. And, you know, there's been just so much that happens every day. So it was great for me. And then, of course, my husband walks in the middle of this and was like, what are you doing? And so I said, I'm learning how to control my anxiety. He's like, well, you have me. Like, you can just talk to me about this. <laughs> I was like, Wait, wait, I just got to laugh. All right. <laughs> All right. Back to the anxiety thing. Back to, yeah, I'm going to need a third party here. So, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so there we are. Oh, that's neat. I hope everyone out there is doing something, you know, because anxiety is a state that is so normal for us to all feel right now. But I think it's how much effort we put into interrupting that pattern. Sometimes we all do better than other times, but I think tools like that are cool. So that's great. I'm glad you did that. I thought you would be proud of me. Yeah. There's a lot of consequences out there for people who are fully functional doing stuff, but there are even more dire consequences for people with disabilities right now. And also, we actually really haven't talked about ableism on the podcast in depth. We just touched on it, you know, just in some references, but we love it because this was a topic that came to us from a listener. We love when listeners ask us to cover certain topics. And this one was suggested by Courtney McCormick. Yay. Hi, Courtney, who is a longtime listener and someone, Misasha, I think you were able to connect with her over the phone, which I think was the coolest thing you did. And I'm totally showing you off because you actually reached out to her, not just via email, but live and in person. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that was so special because you know, I was able to talk to her and wanted to talk to her, not only because we love our listeners and we do actually read every email that we get through the website, 
but also because she and I have this bond through a common experience that her daughter and I share, which is that we both have the majority of our spines fused together. And, you know, to be honest, I often forget that that's the case. Okay, less so now in my 40s than when I was in my 20s. But, you know, I'm super thankful that I was able to have those two back surgeries that allow me to walk now in my 40s. So yeah, you were told that when you were in your teens, that if you didn't do it, you wouldn't be able to walk by the time you were in your 40s. Yeah. And, you know, it was being 13 and wearing a back brace that goes from basically your boobs to your hips with a neck strap, which was, you know, awesome in Southern California growing up because that is totally visible under everything. And when you're 13, what you want to do is stand out in a major way. (laughs) So, yeah. But yeah, all of that was worth it to be able to walk now for sure. It's pretty incredible. And you, I mean, I've always known you have strength and inner strength and physical strength. But I mean, I met you during the second surgery. I knew you at that time already. And to see you coming out of that process and recovering and, you know, accepting help, like you've been through so much physically, and I'm sure that has shaped who you are, has to have shaped who you are today. And I admire you for your grace through all of that. I have a question, though. Yeah. Did you ever consider yourself or do you ever consider yourself disabled? No. And, you know, it was funny because in that right after the anxiety conversation with my husband, where he was like, I'm the only one you need for that. He was like, what else are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm working on this episode for ableism. And, you know, and I mentioned the spinal fusion. He's like, well, I mean, you're not disabled. So that was exactly the line of conversation that we had. So I'm going to be listening to that therapist again. But anyway, no, you know, I don't. And I think I think I have limitations physically, but how I have always viewed it. And I would feel differently about it, I think, if I wasn't able to walk, let's say. But I feel that I was very lucky in being able to have these rods in my spine and knowing that, you know, I'm never going to be able to do like a cobra pose again or bend backwards like I used to in ballet. But that's to me is a small price to pay for that. You know, it's interesting when you said that about when you're not because you can do certain things, but it's a limitation. And I guess it's always been part of who you are. And so I guess that's how you see it. It's not a label. It's an experience you've been through that has made you who you are and that it's how your body just is. It's not everything about you. It doesn't define you. And you actually, I think that's led you to do a lot of the work you do in the athletic field, right? In fitness classes and bar classes all this time, the last decade or so, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I think that being able to figure out how to use my body in ways that continues to make me stronger, but doesn't hurt what has already happened in my body has really made me want to share that with other people. Because I see that a lot of clients in fitness classes, you know, having injuries, having surgeries, having things that people told them they couldn't do. And when you learn the ways in which you can do it, or you can modify it to make that accessible to you, and that modification doesn't mean that it's easier. It just means that you are able to do this in a way that supports your body. I think when you see that light turn on for people, it's amazing. And it took me a long time to get there because I am super, super type A about certain things and ultra competitive. I know. (laughs) Sarah, you're just like, yeah, yeah, I know. Shocker, really? (laughs) I know. um, You have such (laughs) self-awareness. 
<laughs> but it was so hard for me to take the modifications at times and to stop running. I mean, I was the worst patient after the first surgery when I was like, yeah, I'm going to do tap dance because, you know, I was doing musical theater at the time and the musical was 42nd Street. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to tap. And my orthopedic surgeon was basically like, you are a giant idiot. Do not do I think he retired shortly after my surgery. I'm sure there was no link there. But yeah, I think just being making choices that work for your body. And that is true whether you have a steel rod in your spine or not, because we all go through injuries and we all go through things. But I think that, you know, I was really lucky in that, you know, the surgeries that I had basically made movement for me very accessible right now you know, but a lot of people don't have that. And so that's, to me, is where the real challenge is. And I don't want to go too far off topic, but the one question I also have is, because what you said was taking the modifications doesn't mean it's easier, it just means you can do it. So I think that mental flip of making accommodations to allow someone to be able to do something doesn't mean that it's cheating or it's easy or it's not as, you know, okay or as tough. It just is to allow someone else to do it who's not built the same way. Yes. And I think exercise in the end should be a celebration of what your body can do, right? It shouldn't be a punishment for something that you either you ate or that you need to achieve or something. It should just be a celebration of what you can do in that day. I really believe that because there are days where you feel great and there are days where you feel not so great, regardless of what is going on with your body. And it should just be what you can do in that day and feel really good about it. And I want to come back and talk to you also about how you manage chronic pain or discomfort or, you know, that sort of stuff. Because I think when your body is feeling a certain way, that's a whole other mental game that you have to play with yourself to make it through too. But maybe we can talk about that in just a moment. Yeah. Because I, I want to talk about what is ableism. I mean, we threw that word around, but I just want to make sure we're clear and on the same page with everybody. Because there was an article written by a woman named Leah Smith, who is a disability advocate for the Center for Disability Rights. And according to that article, she wrote, ableism is a set of beliefs or practices that devalue and discriminate against people with physical, intellectual, or psychiatric disabilities, and often rests on the assumption that disabled people need to be fixed quote, in one form or another. And I think that's really important to realize it's physical, intellectual and psychiatric, because we all really understand. I'm sure, you know, with people talking about depression, you feel judgmental when people admit to it. And we really are pushing this mental health, there's been mental health month and conversations around it that are trying to break down that assumption. But um, Leah Smith notes that ableism is intertwined in our culture, due to many limiting beliefs about what disability does or does not mean how able-bodied people learn to treat people with disabilities, and how often people with disabilities are not included at the table for key decisions. Yeah, and whether it's conscious or not, ableism sort of projects that idea that people who have disabilities are somehow lesser than able-bodied people. And that's, you know, similar to the way that sexism, you know, whether it's hostile or, you know, through implicit bias or sort of a benevolent gesture even, projects the view that women are less than men. Everyone deserves to be treated with respect, including people with disabilities. And among other things, you know, their personal preferences for, let's say, what they would like to be called should always be honored. Yeah, I mean, let's take a moment here and think about what it might feel like for someone 
I mean, like you mentioned, we've all been through teenage years, right? Nobody wanted to be different. You mentioned having to go through with the brace and the strap, right? Like, yep. did you want to be like everybody else or did you like being different? Yeah, wanted to be like everyone else, was horrified that I was buying clothes that were, you know, two sizes bigger because my clothes wouldn't fit the brace. You know, if someone shoves you in the stomach, you fall backwards because you can't bend. Yeah, those were all things that as, you know, a 13 to 16 year old girl, you never want to live because you're worried about all the other things that are happening to you at that time, too. Yeah. Right. And that's what today's parent, I referred to an article written there by a clinical psychologist who said, even from ages nine until 11, which is sort of this middle childhood, kids start to gain awareness of similarities and differences within peer groups. And then these hierarchies start to develop, which put kids in like that cool group. I'm totally air quoting right here. (laughs) Because I hate that phrase. My kids use that phrase. And I'm like, what does that even mean? You know, you got to break it down. And But they are forming that identity. And other kids float sort of on the periphery. And, you know, who wants to be different because of a choice you made, let alone because of how you're actually built biologically that you can do nothing about? And on many, many occasions, and this is what a licensed therapist said in another article I read, this person, this therapist said, I've had teenagers brought to my office by their parents seeking support because their child isn't meeting the expectations set by someone in authority whether that's the school system, the culture at large, athletic coaches, or the parents themselves. Just because kids don't fit in in one way doesn't mean that it's necessarily a problem. This is a gift to the world should we choose to recognize it as such, a chance to grow and expand and to learn and maybe experience something beautiful. And going back to the original article I talked about at Today's Parent, she advises that as your child finds her place, let her know that there's no official coolness scale. Like it's really, really subjective and encourage the kids to embrace their passions. Because, you know, at that time, it might leave you outside of the kid, outside the in crowd. But what's more important is, you know, gaining that inner joy from doing what you really want to be doing. And I think that's safe to say that adults even nowadays still have a hard time figuring out what brings them joy and to feel free to really be themselves. So I'm wondering if rather than trying to fit everyone into a box, and especially for people who are differently abled, why not widen the lines of the box for all of us and make room for all of us to be who we are? Oh, I love that. Widening the lines of the box for all of us. That's awesome. So getting back to the article with Leah Smith, too, and regarding specifically ableism, she states that just like most forms of discrimination, ableism often shows its ugly face from non-disabled people with good intentions. Unfortunately, and I think as we all know, good intentions never solved any problems. So let's put those good intentions aside and get to the root of what's really going on. She believes that much of ableism rests on the medical model of disability in that as a society, we have first come to understand disability through the lens of a doctor in that something is wrong with this person and that something needs to be fixed. This is how we are taught to think about disability. However, where we have interpreted the word wrong is where we have gone wrong. Just because something is different does not mean it is bad. And that's a very critical point. Kind of like, you know, with the modifications, right? It is not easier. It is different and it is unique to you. Secondly, ableism often shows up in how we have learned to treat people with disabilities and the language used to discuss disabled people. As small children, many non-disabled people are taught to be extra nice to people with disabilities, you know, opening the door for them, running to press the elevator button for them, asking if they need any help as they are crossing the street and so forth. 
And Leah Smith says that she's assuming the good intention behind this lesson is to treat people with disabilities like anyone else. But by explicitly being nice to this group of people specifically, what we're really doing is pitying them based on the belief that they couldn't do any of these things on their own and are completely helpless. This assumption itself is the root of the problem. And further, language is also constantly reflecting this assumption of helplessness. When someone says a disabled person is wheelchair bound, for instance, it doesn't give them much credit as a mover and shaker. I mean, I think that's really interesting. You know, when you were recovering from your surgery, one of the things I said earlier was that I really admired your ability to take help. Like, how did that feel? You know, some of our friends, you weren't allowed to carry books to class. So we would actually, the classes we had together, I would carry your books. Like, how did you process that? You know, did you like it when people asked? Did people just do stuff for you? What was that period like, if you don't mind me asking? For part of it, I really struggled with wanting to do it all myself, you know, because I was so used to it and I was so used to being independent. And I thought that it was, I was losing part of my independence in some ways. But then I realized that people wanted to help because they wanted to help. They didn't see me as, you know, someone who was, they needed to pity. So they needed to help me, if that makes sense. But I feel like that was a temporary state for me where that is not temporary for a lot of people. And I might feel differently about that if it wasn't a temporary state, if I was always, and you know, you guys were my close friends too. So it might've been different if it was someone, if I was, you know, constantly strangers were coming up to me and saying like, oh, can I do this for you? Oh, can I do this for you? That might be frustrating. I could see that. Yeah. I mean, I think this applies to learning differences too. Going back to what you said about the language we use around it, in terms of the, you know, we mentioned the different types, the physical, intellectual, and psychiatric differences. But, you know, when you call it a learning disability is no longer a phrase. In schools, it's called a learning difference, which I think is really critical in terms, but it's the language I'm not used to yet, right? I grew up calling it a learning disability, but it's a learning difference because it doesn't mean they're not able, which is different than being physically able or not. But in this realm, in the intellectual or psychiatric realm, it means people learn differently and when you say it that way, it really is so obviously true. I mean, everybody learns differently. And so if you think about some of the most ingenious people in our society now, many of them have learning differences that made them develop strengths in other ways. And just for example, Richard Branson, who I heard speak openly, talks about his dyslexia and credited his ability to work with a team largely due to his resilience on others or reliance on others, sorry, to help him navigate his business and the papers and the reading. Um, Adam Levine, who's a singer for Maroon 5, is living with ADHD. Justin Timberlake is living with OCD and ADHD. And Ingvar Kamprad, who he may not be a household name, but he founded IKEA. And if you think about IKEA furniture, I think it sounds like his experience with dyslexia is one of the reasons the instructions for putting that furniture together are so visual. Really interesting. Yeah. Right? It's different. And like you said, you take the modification, but it doesn't make it easier. It makes it different. And it brings a whole realm of how we function as a society. We need people who think differently in this society. I mean, I think the other word that people use are things like he suffers from a condition, like he caught COVID-19. Right? It's like you suffer from that. It's not suffering. It's just brain wiring. But words like, you know, they suffer from ADD makes it seem like we think it's a struggle. And I think to be fair, it probably is a struggle. The world is currently kind of wired to interpret different as wrong. So it's not like the systems are out there being like open to everybody who is, you know, differently abled. But each of us do struggle, if we're honest, no matter how we're wired. 
And I think the more work we do watching our language, our tone, that sort of thing, the better it is for people who are seen as different sort of with an official diagnosis. That said, I think, you know, it's really important to realize that just because you slip and say something offensive to someone with a disability, it doesn't automatically make you an ableist. Even people with disabilities sometimes make these mistakes too, not because people are trying to be offensive, but because the community is not homogenous. There's people have really different experiences depending on what disability they have. And just like in so many other ways, what's important is recognizing where we went wrong individually and actively both remembering and wanting to do better. It sounds like, you know, ableism and challenging our inner tendencies to default to that model is about making sure our language is inclusive and that our minds stay open to all different types of bodies and minds. Yeah. And I love that last part because, you know, going back to my teenage self or going to, you know, when I think about like our listener, Courtney and her daughter, right? It is the closed mindedness of certain people, you know, that make that life so difficult, I think. And that, you know, if we think about everyone in different stages of mobility, of, you know, physical, mental ability, all of that, and we are so inclusive with how we view everyone, then we will not be creating those barriers, which are often the most destructive. And, you know, one of the key points also about ableism and how it really is entrenched in our society is when non-disabled people choose not to include people with disabilities, you know, at the table, generally speaking, right? Just getting to this table or just getting to have opportunities for people of all types of ability means you think about locations, for example, if you're having a meeting, communication formats, transportation, and all of that. I mean, you know, the width of your hallways, let's say, how many steps you have to get into a building for physical disability alone. Accessibility in each of these formats is key for any disabled person to not only be included, but to have a voice. So going back to a physical meeting example, if you had to climb even a single step, read anything that is not also available in Braille, hear what is being said without the availability of an interpreter or sit at a table that is over four feet tall, that pretty much guarantees that there is not going to be a disabled voice that's being heard at your meeting, which is a really powerful, I think, visual example of this. So the best way to deroot ableism in our everyday lives is to ensure that there is always a seat at the table for those who are like you and those who are not, but also checking ourselves on how we treat people with disabilities once they are at that table. So how do we do that? And if you've been listening for a while, you know we love lists. We really do. So, you know, in the true spirit of the Dear White Women podcast from Bustle, Here's a list of things that may not seem ableist, but actually are. And before we get into the list, let's just back up a second and do a little disclaimer. And I just also want to interject that there was a part of me that was like, I'm sure there's people out there being like, why do we need diversity? You know, like the same way that I think it's really critical to think about diversity in terms of is a company's board advisory board all white men? Oh, we probably want women. We probably want people of color. You probably want people of different abilities because as we looked at it, whether it's physical ability or intellectual or psychiatric differences, there's a whole realm of gifts that come from the diversity and the, and the great broadness of perspective when people come to a problem and or come to a company and advise it. So even in just that kind of example, I think it's really critical to remember the robustness and the beauty of all the differences we have in our society. And that's why this is so important. 
Right. Because if those people are not present for that conversation, then that voice is not being heard. And so we are excluding a portion of our society. All right. So the preface to this list. So by now, most of us hopefully know that it is not okay to use the word retarded as derision or to reject people after, let's say, a job interview just because they have a disability. Yeah, I was told that in no uncertain terms by a college friend, probably freshman or sophomore year. She has a sister with a learning difference. And I had used it just in casual conversation. And I felt like, ooh, I didn't realize how bad of a word that is. And I was really glad that she told me. So that word is no longer, hopefully, in anybody's vocabulary. Right. As that kind of ableism is, you know, not only insulting, but it's discriminatory and often illegal. But even, you know, if not that openly discriminatory, there are still many things that don't seem ableist, but which nevertheless are. So these overlooked actions, attitudes, and phrases might seem, you know, fairly innocuous or even helpful. In reality, though, they actually do a lot more harm to people with disabilities, or we'll shorten it sometimes to PWD, than good. So here are just a few of those things that might not seem that bad at first, but which definitely fall under ableism. And while some of these might seem very basic and some might seem obvious, they're probably all worth going over one more time. Yeah. Give yourself a moment to see whether you've done this or you've thought about doing this before for any of these. So first one, announcing someone else's disability in an introduction. So unless there's a really specific reason for why someone introducing two people would refer to one of them as disabled, it's pretty awkward and out of place to say, you know, this is my friend John and he has cerebral palsy. (laughs) I mean, even if it's meant as a heads up, what it does is to communicate, hey, this new person in front of you is disabled, and that's the one thing you need to know up front about them. I think if people want to share their disability with a new acquaintance, they'll do it when they want to. Yeah, totally agree. All right, the next one is saying you're sorry. Imagine saying to someone, gosh, I'm so sorry you're black. (laughs) (laughs) Again, even getting those words out was so funny. That just sounds wrong, doesn't it? All right, so if that sounds wrong, let's replace the word black with disabled. It's not all that uncommon for people with disabilities to hear expressions of sorrow or regret over the origins of their disability, and yet it's just as disparaging as getting looks of pity. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. The next one is forgetting that disability is also a type of identity. I mean, the disability community out there is big, and it's really important to remember how proud many people are of what makes them unique. You know, when we talk about intersectionality, it's really crucial to include disability alongside gender, race, sexuality, religion, socioeconomic background, and so forth. I mean, Disability is not an accident or a difficulty or even a special need. It's an identity, and yet it's not all of who people are, right? It's part of them, part of their identity. So I think that's why going and introducing them as someone with a disability is pretty lame. But I think also I wanted to just interject for a quick moment here, that conversation about pain or the things, isn't it like you overcame, for example, in your situation, a condition in your body that required surgery and you're dealing with pain? Like, is that a source of pride, right? It's part of your, makes you who you are? I don't know. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. How do you process that? No, I mean, I think that phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, although can be highly irritating or overused, I think is true in some ways, right? Because A, I learned I have a really high pain threshold and B, you know, I know how to manage it. And what, you know, someone with a surgery like me needs to know is that, your life is about sort of managing your body going forward so that you can do all the things you want to do. And it's totally doable. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be in a place where I can 
have regular physical therapy and make sure that, you know, my shoulder moves like how it should and my neck moves how it should and my back moves how it should. But it's more of a regular maintenance thing. And you do learn to live with pain on some level. But, you know, I feel like it does make me stronger in some ways, if not physically, then mentally. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Of course. All right, next one, ignoring the disability. So this may vary from person to person because some people are proud of their disability and want others to acknowledge that they have one, while others don't care whether it's overlooked or not. But there's a difference between saying, I think of you just like all my other friends, and saying, well, really, I just pretend it's not there, where it is the disability. So... For example, if you're a person with a disability with an able-bodied significant other and they tell you, I love you despite your disability, you might want to take that as a potential red flag. Because most people, you know, we know, wants a partner who loves all of them, not just parts of them. That's really interesting, too. Yeah. Another one. Assuming that people with disabilities want to talk about it all the time. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Do you want to talk about your back all the time? I mean, this, and you don't even consider yourself with it. No. Yeah, they may be disabled, but they have other interests too, like what Netflix shows are coming out and what we should be for Halloween <laughs> and what songs you should hand wash your hands to. <laughs> your hands to, yes. All right. Insulting our medical equipment. So as one woman said in this Bustle article, I've lost count of how many times people have pointed to my trach tube, like she had a tube in her trachea and called it that thing or said, oh, that must be uncomfortable. Even my doctors say, when are you going to take that thing out? You don't want it in forever, do you? Her retort was, well, actually, it lets me live and breathe every day. So it's been a pretty awesome device. And for the record, she also much prefers when people ask her what the tube is or what to call it. It means that they're open to learning about her disability rather than dismissing it. So she also offered up another example. There's also this idea that people in wheelchairs, like we discussed a little bit earlier, are confined or stuck. But a lot of her friends who use wheelchairs tell her that their wheelchairs actually give them freedom and provide a means of transportation, even that their wheelchairs are a part of their bodies. So when you're insulting a person with disabilities, medical equipment, you're actually insulting their disability as well. And that's how it's being perceived. That's really interesting, too. Yeah. Last one on the list, insisting on helping out. And I get that it's in our nature to ask whether someone's okay or you want to help out with friends who may look like they're struggling. But if a person with a disability says he or she does not need help, listen to that. I heard a story about a kid with a math learning difference. One of their most frustrating times comes when the teacher makes assumptions about what they don't know or goes launching into reteaching a lesson that the kid already understands. Or they give her a hard time for not using the tools she has to solve a problem when she already knows the answer in her mind. So like assumptions are being made about her ability. And the flip side of that is to make it not sound like something's the easiest thing to do in the world, that people should already know the answer or be able to do that. I mean, like you said, for modifications are there to make somebody be able to do it. And if there's a challenge and everybody's just saying, well, that's so easy, it's not actually easy for that person. So for them, when they get to do that thing, it feels like an accomplishment. And so it feels pretty dismissive to say like, oh, that was so easy. And I guess the bottom line is don't assume people know or don't know things or can or can't do things. Ask them honestly and with respect. People are not helpless. They're still capable in many ways. And at the end of the day, people with disabilities know themselves the best. So ask with sincere intention. 
I love that part too, actually, about don't assume, because we talk about this in a lot of different spheres, I think. And when in this, you know, especially assuming you know something or you don't know something or based on, you know, what is visible to you that someone can or can't do something, I think that has been the one way in which I have experienced this where people assume that because I have a steel rod, I can't do this or I can't do that. And that is the most frustrating to me in this because... I think I know my limit, but when people put those limits on me, that tends to, you know, just irk me too. And depending on what mood I'm in, I'm going to say something about it or I'm not going to say something about it, but I will remember it. (laughs) So yeah. Critical point. All right. Well, that was a brief introduction to ableism and we hope it was helpful. But currently in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, did you notice I didn't sing this time? Thank you. (laughs) 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 Being aware of ableism really isn't enough anymore, because as we've mentioned in our prior episodes about COVID-19, nothing highlights inequity in treatment than a virus that's coming for everyone. And so one thing we'd like to touch on today is what happens when you have kids with special needs in a pandemic, when everyone is expected to be at home and you're not prepared for that. Because, you know, you and I are sitting there being like, oh my gosh, school may not come back for the rest of the school year. But many special needs kids rely on schools as more than just a learning experience. As NPR has reported, the vast majority of schools in the U.S. have transitioned from the classroom to the computer. Teachers and administrators have struggled to offer learning to special needs students. And so there was an article as part of this report There was a kid named Jacob who attends the Hopkinton School District, and they didn't respond to requests for comment on how it's handling the needs of students in special education. So we just wanted to share this with you because some districts really have plowed ahead with holding one-on-one lessons over software like Zoom or Schoolology and all that sort of stuff. And then virtual meetings to discuss the individualized education plans, the IEPs, that are required for students in special education. And other places have put all learning on pause as they figure out how on earth to use distance learning to serve all students, not just those with disabilities, but also those who don't have computers, who don't have high-speed internet, you know, people who have two parents working from home from a computer and who don't have the bandwidth to also stream two other computers for kids. You know, again, according to NPR, schools really have been very adaptable. Teachers are incredible, but they've had to move online within a very short time frame, often without extra resources and very little training. Yeah. And so who does this affect? An estimated 14% of public school students receive special education services in the United States. The Federal Individuals with Disabilities Education Act ensures that those children have a right to free, appropriate public education whenever and wherever schools are operating. So you can see that when schools change their operation, this has a direct impact on that 14%. According to Ann Hebert, who's a special education teacher for the Ferguson Florissant School District, which is in the suburbs, basically in Missouri and St. Louis, our district overall is implementing Google Classroom, she says, but that doesn't work well for my students since I have students with more significant needs. Her students have intellectual disabilities, including autism. Many are nonverbal and some struggle with writing and typing and can't use technology independently. So she says all of these things that are out there aren't really going to be the best option for my kids. She has been sending emails with videos of her class's morning routine. They include familiar songs and pictures of their classroom calendar. She says routine is very important to my students and she sent packets home for students, but she's still trying to figure out ways that she can have meaningful content for them. And I can see that that would be so tricky because 
were on Google Classroom and I was playing around with that. And that requires A, some technology understanding and B, the ability to really visually take in stuff and, you know, be able to process it sort of at, at, you know, a classroom speed, which is, you know, difficult. So Kate, a mother whose family lives in Louisiana, had also spoken, you know, to sources that we looked at. And she stated, for our autistic daughter, school is so much more than childcare or academics. She is without services, a behavioralist, OT, speech language pathologist, counselor, on top of her supportive teachers. Given the strain on the healthcare system and pre-existing wait lists, we can't suddenly switch her to new providers out of this system. So she wanted to be clear that the impact on more vulnerable populations is going to be more severe than on her daughter, noting she'll be okay, she said, but the impact on her and us is pretty significant right now. So that's in Louisiana, but also Cheryl lives in California, has been working from home full time and around the clock as a caregiver to a child with a severe disability. Social distancing doesn't mean we get to finally clean our houses, she said. It means we have even less support and much more stress. One woman who's a foster parent and can't reveal her name or location laid out all the challenges facing her infant foster daughter who has cerebral palsy. Because family visitation is canceled, she can't see her birth parents or older siblings. They've done video chats, but because babies build attachments from their caregivers meeting physical needs, it's truly not the same. All therapies for her cerebral palsy, including the fitting of orthotics or braces for feet, have been delayed, which could cause long-term damage to her feet, ankles, and hips. The foster child's birth parent has had a history of substance abuse and has chronic health problems as a result. They've been sober for several months and are doing well, but a big part of their recovery is contingent on in-person support groups. Sobriety is a major factor in a parent's ability to be reunified with their children, the foster mother explained. A relapse now could mean this family ends up torn apart legally forever. It could change the course of everyone's lives. So those are some big things and things that I had honestly not thought about. Yeah. No, me neither. I mean, that's really different than just complaining about yeah. having to sit with the kids on Google Classroom and they can go, you know, bounce balls around and watch a movie on their own while we record a podcast. Yeah, exactly. So if you're like us and not a parent facing these particular challenges, what can you do to help? One father said his eight-year-old son is really struggling to understand what's happening, why he's not in school, and an illustrated storyboard would be so helpful to explain the situation. Another mom had suggested offering up access to your stash of food supplies as some kids need specific brands because of allergies or consistency needs or sensory issues that are all sold out. But the best way you can help is probably by asking the parent what they really need, including money or just the opportunity to talk. Lori, who lives in Cleveland, said that my son is 13 and has very severe disabilities. The prospect of him being out of a specialized school that he loves dearly for months is terrifying to me. Just checking in and acknowledging that it's hard helps me more than anything. I mean, really, this conversation has opened my eyes to a whole new way of thinking about our current state of living and all the stark differences and needs that we all have. And, you know, that Lori from Cleveland's comment, I mean, I think it really does keep coming back to connection in this time of isolation about not making assumptions about people and reaching out. So I guess the challenge is who are you going to reach out to today? If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. 
And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 